Good day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Broadcast from the studios of 3CR. Your only radio left. My name is Susanna Duffy. In this episode, I want to remind you about Will Fowles, who easily becomes unhinged. And to remind you that it's 50 years since Australian troops left Vietnam. And I can't help myself. One last shot at former Prime Minister Morrison. But first of all, I must say congratulations to Melissa Ryan, recently awarded the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association Young Driver of the Year. Melissa drives all over the country, loading and unloading cattle, sometimes spending up to 14 hours a day behind the wheel of a 909 Kenworth B-double at other times in a road train. What a job. Melissa is 24 years old and out of the nine finalists for the Young Driver of the Year award, she was the only female driver. Good on you, Melissa. 3CR nation truly move forward when its leaders refuse to face the past? The voice to Parliament is a pressing example of this. But there's one more thing. The deep scars of the robo-debt debacle The aftermath of the Royal Commission report is still unfolding. In a striking display of audacity, former Prime Minister Morrison brazenly, brazenly dismissed the Commission's damning findings against him. The report meticulously detailed the suffering inflicted on individuals and their families but Morrison staunchly asserts that he bears no responsibility. He's still denouncing the Commission's conclusions as disproportionate, incorrect and unsubstantiated. His response has chilling echoes in the devise of tactics employed by Donald Trump. Morrison claims that he's a victim, a victim of political targeting. But the real victims are those whose lives were lost and the ordinary Australians whose trust was eroded by this unlawful scheme. Bill Shorten summed up Morrison really well as a bottomless well of self-pity with not a drop of mercy for all of the real victims of robo-debt. I agree with Shorten. Morrison's evasion of responsibility is typical of the broader trend that existed during the Liberal National Coalition's time in office between 2013 to 2022, filled as it was with politicians who evade responsibility and accountability at every turn. The commission into the robo-debt scheme followed a painstakingly and forensically detailed examination. 
the transparency and accountability displayed by the Commission stands in stark contrast to Morrison's response, a response which attempts to sidestep his own culpability. His insistent denial of the Commission's finding raises serious questions about the nature of accountability in the political landscape. How could he claim to be ignorant of the facts? He's lying. We all know he's lying. We demand an answer. The public demands an answer. 3CR I wonder... Have you heard any more about Will Fowles, the member for Ringwood? You know, the one that had to step down because of allegations of a serious assault. He had to resign a couple of weeks ago because of this occurrence. We can't say much about it because the alleged victim does not wish to be identified. But I can identify Will Fowles. Four years ago, Will Fowles became unhinged in his Canberra motel. The reason he lost it was because his medication was in his luggage and his luggage was behind a locked door. So Will did what any elected representative of the people would do. He kicked the door in. The motel staff weren't happy and they called in the police. Other residents of the motel were kept waiting outside in a Canberra morning while the police investigated the incident. Will Fowles apologised, of course, you know, and rightly so, and made it very clear that he was in Canberra for a celebration unrelated to his Victorian duties. He later gave a statement that he has been dealing with addiction and the medication that he took for that addiction was in his luggage. This would explain his rage, of course. It would explain why he became violent and a threat to public safety. Okay, he admitted to long-standing addiction issues, but that doesn't explain why he felt he could destroy property because he was inconvenienced by a locked door. Or was he just drunk? By his own admission, Will Fowles' addiction issues predated his election. Now that raises the issue of whether he had a duty to inform his prospective employer, the people of Victoria. I'm not unsympathetic with anyone struggling with addiction issues. Not at all. Not one bit. I think it's only fair that prospective employees should state any problems which they have. It need not be a block to their employment. But I hope that four years down the track, the reasons why Will Fowles lost it at a Canberra motel are not the same reasons that he is now involved in an allegation of a serious assault. It's 50 years this year since Australian troops stopped killing the people of Vietnam, and we still have not been given any explanation, apart from all the way with LBJ, our slavish devotion to the whims of the presidents of USA. What shaped my life in the 60s 
and the lives of my friends and colleagues and comrades from that era was, of course, war in Vietnam. What on earth were we doing there? Why? Ah, oh, dear, it sometimes just really gets me down. But anyway, let's have a look at it. Memories. Protest movements in Australia resulted from dramatic shifts in public opinion on contentious issues and as a response to how governments of that time dealt with shifting opinions. The 1970s saw an increase in rights movements as people's opinions on important social and political matters began to change. There were debates over how Australia approached war from the early 20th century on, but none of them achieved the widespread scale of protests against the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War began as a civil war between North Vietnam and South Vietnam, but it was representative of the wider Cold War between USA and the Soviet Union. Australia's involvement in this conflict began in 1962, with the addition of armed forces coming later, and reinforced through the introduction of conscription in 1965. There were small protests against conscription in the 1960s. However, the intensity of protest action and the shift in public opinion came as people were informed of the true nature of this war. With the advent of television in most households, detailed reports on war activities were much more accessible than in past conflicts when information was available at cinemas and in newspapers and even then was heavily censored. Reports about the effects of the war on Vietnamese civilians, including the use of chemical agents like Agent Orange, contributed to this shifting opinion. But for many, reports of the My Lai massacre in 1969 completely erased any moral justification for participation in this war. What was Australia doing in Vietnam? In July of 1967, US President Lyndon B. Johnson sent two of his principal advisers, Clark Clifford and General Maxwell Taylor, to Australia and to New Zealand with an urgent mission. Back in USA, protests were raging in streets and on university campuses. Hawks and doves were battling in Washington. Defence Secretary Robert McNamara was heading towards resignation, an admission that his Vietnam policy had failed. Amid this turmoil, General Westmoreland was demanding a substantial escalation in American troop numbers, around 400,000 at the start of the year. To get any increase out of a highly critical Congress, Johnson had to show that American allies, especially Australia and New Zealand, that they were paying their own way, that they were prepared to increase their commitments. As Clifford told the New Zealand government, one additional New Zealand soldier 
produces 50 American soldiers. The prospects for this Clifford Taylor mission looked pretty good in Australia, where the Conservative government had been outspokenly hawkish. When American officials first indicated in 1964 that the administration was considering sending combat forces to Vietnam and that an Australian contribution would be welcome, they seemed to have in mind a modest increase to the advisory team of 83 soldiers already in South Vietnam. Instead, Robert Menzies sent a battalion of 800 troops, although their role was far from clear. As Menzies saw it, the risk in American policy was not strategic overreach, but isolationism and what that would mean for Australia and its neighbours. The crucial step to Menzies was to ensure American commitment. Once that was achieved, any victory would be certain. Australia's forward defence strategy after 1945 was to make small military commitments in order to keep Britain and the USA, which Menzies called our great and powerful friends, committed to Southeast Asia. He believed in the domino theory, and he told Australians all about the domino theory. Our young men were conscripted in Australia. Conscripted. They were aged 20 and too young to vote. Back then, you had to be 21 years old before you could get a vote. So, too young to vote, but old enough to go and fight in a war for USA. It all went through a big barrel lottery. This is a short news clip of an actual lottery taking place. This barrel held the immediate future for 40,300 young Australians who have registered for national service since January the 25th. It will continue to hold the immediate future for all young Australians who reach the age of 20 while the government continues its present policy of national service training by ballot. Inside here today were 181 marbles representing birthdays. 96 were drawn to provide a nucleus of 4,200 young men for training this year after exemptions and deferments have been decided upon. Uh, these young men, the 4,200, will be drafted in two intakes. The first draft, which will be on June the 30th this year, will send 1,000 350 young men to Puckapunyal in Victoria and 750 to Kapuka in New South Wales for recruit training before they're drafted to regular army units to complete their two years service. The plan, which was announced last November in view of the deteriorating strategic situation, aims eventually at providing a constant strength of 13,800 young national servicemen in Australia's military forces. Sergeant, I'm a drafty and I've just arrived in camp. I've come to wear the uniform and join the martial tramp. And I want to do my duty, but one thing I do implore. You must give me lessons, Sergeant, for I've never killed before. To do my job obediently is my only desire. 
to learn my weapon thoroughly and how to aim and fire. To learn to kill the enemy and then to slaughter more. I'll need instruction, sergeant, for I've never killed before. Now there are rumors in the camp about our enemy. They say that when you see him, he looks just like you and me. But you deny it, sergeant, and you are a man of war. So you must give me lessons, for I've never killed before. Now there are several lessons that I haven't mastered yet. I haven't got the hang of how to use the bayonet. If he doesn't die at once, am I to stick him with it more? Oh, I hope you will be patient, for I've never killed before. And the hand grenade is something that I just don't understand. You've got to throw it quickly or you're apt to lose your hand. Does it blow a man to pieces with its wicked muffled roar? I've got so much to learn because I've never killed before. Well, I want to thank you, Sergeant, for the help you've been to me. You've taught me how to kill and how to hate the enemy. And I know that I'll be ready when they march me off to war. And I know that it won't matter that I've never killed before. I know that it won't matter that I've never killed before. And I can't talk about the Vietnam War in Australia without mentioning the Fairly Five. What a catchy name, the Fairly Five. The year was 1965. The Menzies government had introduced Australian conscription and mothers were outraged for the lives of their sons. To be a conscientious objector was to condemn yourself to being ostracised. To be a woman protesting the war was to be a scandal against womanly behaviour. Five brave women spoke out against the injustice of conscription. Jean McLean, Joan Coxich, Irene Miller, Chris Cathy and Joe McLean Cross. They were arrested in May of 1971 for handing out anti-conscription pamphlets of government property. These women were part of the anti-conscription, anti-war movement Save Our Sons. It was a peaceful movement created to protest against the war and to protest conscription. They achieved their goals through many peaceful activities, including demonstrations, candlelight vigils, letters to politicians, and handing out anti-conscription leaflets. The Fairly Five were named for their 14-day prison sentence in Melbourne's Fairly Prison after being the first civilians charged by the Summary Offences Act of 1971. The Act aimed to limit the rights of protesters including acts of obstruction. The Fairly Five went to the Department of Labour and National Service to inform these boys about the Vietnam War and the right to be conscientious objectors. They were allowed to distribute their leaflets until one young man spoke to them and then decided against enlisting. The Fairly Five refused to leave and were eventually arrested by police and informed that they would be required to attend court for willfully trespassing on government property. They were brought before a judge and sentenced to 14 days in Fairley Prison without any possibility of paying a fine. 
Now, this jail sentence was shocking news to the Australian public. The harsh punishment promoted hype in the media and helped promote the Save Our Sons cause. After a lot of media attention, the women were offered an appeal. However, they were determined to stay the full prison term. Not only did the jailing of these women inspire a vigil outside the prison, people deliberately trespassed in public areas to show solidarity. Clergy preached about women's bravery, workers embargoed docks, and newspapers continued to support these five women. Their imprisonment inspired people to take action, to stand against authority on principle. The actions of these women showed the fierce determination that they had for their cause, and they reflect the type of actions and ideologies that were involved in Save Our Sons. The media wanted mercy for mothers, but the Fairly Five rejected this as an act of opposing government law. If they had left prison on the basis of being mothers, their cause would have been weakened. If the gender roles had been reversed, a father would not have been offered an appeal based on being a father. Good on you, Fairly Five. We don't forget you. Over 60,000 Australians served in Vietnam. 523 died as a result, and more than 2,500 were wounded. The war was the cause of the greatest social and political dissent in Australia since the conscription referendums of the First World War. The Vietnam War continues to cast a long shadow over a generation of Australian servicemen and servicewomen well after the war's over. Five decades after their service in Vietnam, many veterans lived with the enduring impacts of that conflict. Wars have always had a lasting effect on the lives of those who fought them, but rarely, if ever, have the legacies of war been the subject of such public debate as with Vietnam. The rejection of veterans on their return, the endless debate about the impacts of the dreadful Agent Orange, and the slow but growing understanding of PTSD, originally called post-Vietnam syndrome. But all of these contributed to making the post-war experiences of Vietnam veterans very different from those of veterans of Australia's earlier wars. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. And I leave you with Breach Pan Celtic, the group from Brittany, and The Gale from The Last of the Mohicans. Thank you.